First John chapter 4. You know, when I come to a passage, the first thing I look for is the main idea or the theme. And in our passage this morning, it's not very difficult to discern. It begins in verse 7 by saying, Beloved, let us love one another. And it ends in verse 21 with the words, The one who loves God should love his brother also. And if you'll count, you'll find that the word love appears in this passage 27 times. So it's obvious that John's theme is that we ought to love one another. You say, well, I've been hearing that throughout this book. Love one another, love one another, love one another. At this point, you may be saying, okay, John, I've got it. But give me one good reason why we ought to love one another. Give me one good reason why I ought to love you. And John seems to anticipate that because he far exceeds our expectation. He gives us seven reasons in this passage why we ought to love one another. Seven reasons why I ought to love you. First reason, love runs in the family, verses 7 and 8. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Now, children typically demonstrate the characteristics of their parents. People have told me all my life, you're just like your father. Now, you know why that is? That's because of two things. Number one is heredity. I've got his genes. That's why I stand like he does. That's why people say you move your hands like he does. Heredity. But second is environment. I have been influenced by him through relationship. I see that in my own kids. They emulate me. I've got a picture over my computer of Lindsay when she was about four years old. And she came out into the yard and she had on my hat and my shirt and my pants and my shoes. And she's picking up the shirt to show us that she's also got my boxing shorts on. (laughs) Now that's a cute picture, but it's also a solemn reminder that children demonstrate the characteristics of their parents. So it shouldn't surprise me when people say to me, you're just like your father. That's to be expected. And John's point in verses 7 and 8 is that people ought to be coming up to me and saying, you're just like your heavenly father. And what's our heavenly father like? Well, verse 8 says, God is love. And why should you and I be like him? Two reasons. Number one is heredity. You see it at the end of verse 7? We have been born of God. 1 John 3, 9 says we have his seed, his nature inside of us. Heredity. Second reason is environment. You see the other phrase at the end of verse 7? And knows God. Relationship. 
You see, my love for you should be a natural consequence of the fact that I have been born of God, heredity, and I know God, environment. It runs in the family. Now, what if a person says, I know God, says he's a Christian, carries a Bible, quotes Bible verses, but doesn't love? Well, John says in verse 8, he doesn't know God. See, a loveless person claiming to have been born of God is like me claiming to have been born of Puerto Rican parents that I in no way resemble. A loveless person professing to know God is like me claiming to have an intimate relationship with King Abdullah of Jordan, and I don't even speak his language. God is love, and love is from God. And those who love one another are obviously born of God and know God, and those who do not love one another are obviously not born of God and don't know God because it runs in the family. You say, well, wait a minute. Does this mean that non-Christians don't love? Does this mean that non-Christians can't love? Well, I think we'd all have to say that we have witnessed the love of non-Christians. We witnessed the love of a husband for a wife. We witnessed the love of parents for children. We witnessed the love of friends for friends. It's evident that love exists even in, among non-Christians. You see, God is the source of that also, at least indirectly, because God is the creator, and he created us in his image. And the Bible tells us that all good things come from God. But you know, if you look carefully at the love of a non-Christian, it has one major flaw, and that is it's self-centered. It's been kind of twisted and distorted and manipulated so that it's directed back toward me. You see, the love we show as non-Christians is really a love of ourselves. We love our children, our father and mother, our relatives, our dog, our cat, our friends. We love those who do something for us. We love those who receive something from us. We love those who love us. So what I really love as a non-Christian is the projection of myself in others. And Jesus recognized this. He said in Matthew 5, 46, For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Even the tax gatherers do that. You see, that's natural. That's innate. And if you're only involved in reciprocal relationships, then you haven't started to experience the love of God. God loves unconditionally. God loves sacrificially. God loves his enemies. God loves those who persecute him. That's the love of God. And John says that is the love that sets apart God's children. You see, John is simply making the point here that wherever you find the life of God, 
you will always find the love of God. And if your love is not available for those who don't love you, if your love is really self-pleasing at heart, if your love doesn't reach out to those who irritate and offend and repulse you, then it's no good saying that you belong to God. Because that is not God's love. Therefore, that is not God's life. God's children will be characterized by God's love. Because, verse 8 says, God is love. Now that's a great statement. God is love. I hope you underlined it in verse 8. If you didn't, you can catch it down in verse 16. God is love. God in His very essence, God in His very nature, is love. Now what's that tell us about God? Well, it tells us that love is not a mood that God gets into now and then. Love is not something that God turns on and turns off. Love is not something that God has to generate or manufacture or work up. He doesn't say, I think I'll love today. Let's see, where did I put my love? God is love. You see, God doesn't have office hours. You can never catch Him at a bad time. He is always love, 24-7. And so loving is not just one of God's many activities. All of God's activity is loving activity. There is nothing that God does that does not include love. You say, well, wait a minute. What about when God is acting in judgment? Well, let's think about it. At what point in history was God's judgment the greatest? At the cross. That's where God poured out His wrath for our sins for all time. All His wrath poured out on the cross at that moment. When was the point in time when God's love was the greatest? The cross. That's when God poured out His love on you and me. So at the same time God's judgment was the greatest, we would have to say His love was the greatest. See, we need to understand an important principle about God. And that is God never exercises one of His attributes at the exclusion of another. His justice is always loving, and His love is always just. God is love. God doesn't just love sometimes. God, at the very heart of His being, is love. And so all of His activity flows from self-giving love. And if you are His child, then you will be like Him. And the fundamental way that that will show up is by you loving others. Because love runs in the family. Second reason that I'm to love you is because I've been so loved, verses 9 to 11. 
Notice verse 9. By this the love of God was manifested in us, or for us, or toward us. Now how has God loved us? Well, let's pick out five characteristics of His love in verses 9 and 10. First of all, God's love is visible. Verse 9, by this the love of God was manifested. It was manifested. It was clearly seen. It is obvious. If you've got invisible love, it's not God's love. Husbands, if your wife can't see it, it's because she doesn't have it. If you're in a relationship and you can't see it, it's because it's not there. Because God's love is visible love. God's love is not abstract. God's love is not simply sentimental. God's love is not just a bunch of good intentions. It's real. It's been manifested. It's visible. Second characteristic. God's love is sacrificial. Verse 9. By this, the love of God was manifested in us that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world. God's love is expressed in the fact that God gave. His love is sacrificial. And what He gave was not just a token gesture. Verse 9 says, He sent His only begotten Son. He gave the best. He gave the most. He gave the dearest. And if you have love that is only expressed in vague generalities, it's not God's love. If you have love that doesn't cost you anything, it's not God's love. If you have love that doesn't involve you giving your best, it's not God's love. Because God's love is sacrificial. He loved you so much that he gave the most he could possibly give. Third characteristic, God's love is purposeful. Look at the end of verse 9. So that we might live through him. You see, the goal of God's love is always the best for the ones loved. The goal of God's love is always designed to make the other person come out better. That's God's love. And I think the reason many of us don't understand God's love is because our love is designed to make us come out better. Our love says, what have you done for me lately? Our love says, what am I getting out of this relationship? God's love says, what have I done for you lately? God's love says, what are you getting out of this relationship? God's love is purposeful. It desires the very best for you. And what is the very best thing a dead person can have? Life. And that's exactly what God's love purposed for you and me. Fourth characteristic. God's love is unconditional. Notice verse 10. In this is love, not that we loved God, 
but that he loved us. Human love says, I love you because. I love you because you love me. I love you because you're lovable. God's love says, I love you, period. I love you in spite of the fact that you don't love me. I love you in spite of the fact that you are unlovable. You see, God's love comes out of who he is, regardless of what you are or what you've done. God's love is not tied to the worthiness of the object. It's tied to the nature of the source. God's love is unconditional. It's a husband looking at his wife who is hateful and ornery and irritable and miserable. Stop nodding your heads, men. This is an illustration. It's a husband looking at his wife, and every time he does, he regrets that he ever said, I do. And it's that same husband reaching down into the love of God and saying, I choose to give sacrificially to do the very best for you in spite of the fact that you're not worthy. Because, you see, that's exactly what God has done for each of us. If God were looking for something from you, you would have never been saved. And if God were waiting for you to initiate love, he'd still be waiting. Because, you see, you were living your own life, you were doing your own thing, you were going your own way. I don't know if you ever noticed it before, but you have nothing to offer God. Do you realize that? When you have everything, you don't have to borrow. And God has everything that he needs. And so you and I had nothing to offer God, but he loved us anyway. In fact, the implication in verse 9 is that you were dead. How much does a dead person have to offer? Not much. God's love is unconditional. And then the fifth characteristic, God's love is comprehensive. It covers everything. And the biggest barrier that God's love had to overcome was our sin. You see, God hates sin. So sinners are kind of stuck in a love-hate relationship with God. God loves the sinner, but he hates the sin. And you and I are sinners. So how does God deal with that? Well, look at the end of verse 10. He loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. How does God deal with that? Does he just look the other way? No. See, God can't pretend that sin doesn't exist. Does he just settle for loving us from a distance? Is God in heaven saying, I'll love you if you can just reach high enough. 
I'll love you if you can just get up to where I am. No. You see, God came down to where we are. And he brought us up to where he is. And that's what that big word propitiation is all about. You can change that word in your Bible. I wouldn't scratch it out, but you can, you can put it out in the margin. Propitiation equals satisfaction. That's what the word really means. You see, Jesus, through his death, satisfied the wrath of God that was targeted toward you and me. The Bible tells us that Jesus became sin for us and God poured out his wrath on Jesus so that now when God looks at you, he is satisfied. You see, God doesn't have to pretend that your sin doesn't exist. Jesus paid for it 100%. And that's why God has not only forgiven your sins, he has forgotten your sins. And you don't have to worry that someday Satan's going to stand up and say, wait a minute, look at what he did. You see, it's covered. Because God's love is comprehensive. You see, that's how God has loved you. He has loved you with a love that is visible, sacrificial, purposeful, unconditional, and comprehensive. Now, what's John's point? We'll look at verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. This is the answer to every lame excuse we come up with. You say, oh, I just can't love that person. You don't know what she's like. You don't know what he's like. John says, beloved... If God so loved you, you also ought to love one another. The little boy had it right when he was asked, how much does Jesus love you? And he said, this much. If God loved me this much, that Jesus would go to the cross, then I ought to love you. The greatest sign of love in the universe is the blood-stained cross. And I don't think you can come to the foot of the cross and see the manifestation of God's love and then go back to a life of selfish indulgence. It just can't happen. You see, God's love for me is the motivation for me to love you. I ought to love you because I've been so loved. And then the third reason. Love is my testimony. Verse 12. No one has beheld God at any time. Now, if somebody comes up to you and says, I had a vision and I saw God you need to ask them what they've been eating because they didn't see God. See what this verse says? No one at any time, no exceptions, has seen God. 
In Exodus 33, 20, God told Moses, no man can see me and live. John 4, 24 says, God is spirit. 1 Timothy 1, 17 says, now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. 1 Timothy 6.16 says that God dwells in unapproachable light whom no man has seen or can see. Now, why does he bring this up in the context of love? Well, John used this phrase earlier in the gospel that he wrote. In John chapter 1 and verse 18, he said, No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. No man has seen God, but Jesus has manifest the person of God. That's why John 1.14 says, The Word became flesh, and we what? We beheld his glory. That's why Jesus could say in John 14, 9, He who has seen me has seen the Father. You see, in Jesus, men saw the unseen God. And now Jesus has gone back to heaven. So the question is, how do men see the unseen God today? Well, notice what John says in verse 12. No one has beheld God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us. See what he's saying? God is seen today through us. The invisible God manifests himself to the world through a body. The first time, it was Jesus in his literal body. The second time, it is us, the church, who are called what? The body of Christ. No one has seen God at any time, but he reveals himself through us. And when is he seen most clearly? When we love one another. Isn't that good? Our love for one another is our testimony to the world that the God that they can't see is real. So is is it any wonder that the world is asking where God went? Look at the rest of verse 12. No one has beheld God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. God's love is perfected. God's love is completed. God's love reaches its ultimate and final conclusion only when it becomes visible in us. You see, it's an abortive thing. It's an incomplete thing. It's an incomprehensible thing until it is manifest in a human body. And how is God's love manifest today? It's manifest through you and me. It originates in God, 
It's manifest in Christ. It's perfected in us as we love one another. And that's how the world sees God. That's our testimony to the world. Remember what Jesus prayed in John 17? Verse 23, he said that they may be perfected in unity that the world may know that thou didst send me. See, I should love you because that is my testimony to the world that my God is real. Fourth reason. Love is my assurance in verses 13 to 16. You know, many people go through times of doubting their salvation. And John tells us here that love is a confirmation to us that our faith is real. And this is one of those passages we could expand this and spend several Sundays on. There's a lot of stuff here. We're going to go through it rather rapidly. But he, he, he tells us here there's real th- really three evidences that we are God's children. The first is the Spirit, verse 13. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us His Spirit. Now that's a subjective confirmation. God has given us His Spirit. His Spirit is in us. I can't see His Spirit in you. You can't see His Spirit in me. But He has given us that as a confirmation. Romans chapter 8 and verse 16 says, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. There is a subjective confirmation to me that I am the child of God. And it is the Holy Spirit inside of me bearing witness with my spirit. Now, if you want to know more about that, read Romans chapter 8. One of the ways he confirms that to me is Romans 8.15, where it says, The Spirit comes inside of us crying, Abba, Father. Whereas I used to look at God as a fearful, faraway, alienated being, when the Spirit of God comes inside of me, I now say, Dada, out of love to God. And that's one of the confirmations to me that I am His child. Evidence number one is the Spirit. Evidence number two is the Word. Look at verse 14. And we have beheld and bear witness that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Now the we there, I think, is is John speaking as one of the apostles. He's saying that he and the others gave eyewitness accounts that God sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Verse 15, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. You see, we have believed and confessed that Jesus is the Son of God based on the historical witness of the apostles. So my confirmation, my evidence, is the Word of God. I know because the Spirit is in me giving me subjective affirmation, but I also know because the Word of God is my objective affirmation. And it's historical eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. See, we try to make it complicated. It's really very simple. It's like the the oldest song you probably know. Jesus loves me, this I know. Why? For the Bible tells me so. That's the confirmation. It's the Spirit. It's the Word. Then there's a third evidence, and that is love in verse 16. And we have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, 
and God abides in him. How do we know that God loves us so much that he sent his son to die for us? John says, we know it by abiding in that love. And how do I know that I'm abiding in that love? Well, the best way I can know I'm abiding in that love is that when it overflows out of my life in love for other people. You see, my acts of love toward you act as an assurance to me that God is in me and I'm in you. And so I should love you because love is my assurance that I'm God's child. Fifth reason. Love is my confidence, verses 17 and 18. Does the thought of one day standing before Jesus Christ at his judgment seat bring you feelings of joy or feelings of panic? Are you anticipating Christ's return or are you dreading Christ's return? You know, when I I was in Bible college, uh, we were in class one day and we had a fellow in our class who worked the night shift. And oftentimes he would fall asleep in class. And one day he fell asleep in class. Great guy, but he fell asleep in class. And, and, and the teacher looked up and saw him sleeping, and I guess he, he was in a, a prankster mood that day. But he just, he just kind of motioned to all of us to leave the classroom. And so we all quietly got up and walked out of the classroom and left Dick Spears laying head down on his desk. And the teacher had one of the fellows who played a trumpet get his trumpet and go outside the classroom at the window, and, he, and the window was open, and he stuck the trumpet in the window, and he blew the trumpet. And Dick woke up, heard the trumpet sound, looked around, and saw he was all alone in the classroom. Now, I'm not sure what went through his mind at that point. But for most people, that would be a bit frightening. Does that thought frighten you, or are you one of those like Paul in 2 Timothy 4.8 who loves his appearing? Does it frighten you, or do you face that with confidence? Well, look what John says in verse 17. By this love is perfected in us that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. You see that? How does John say we will have confidence in the day of judgment? Well, he says it will happen when love is perfected in us. And how is love perfected in us? Go back to verse 12. If we love one another, his love is perfected in us. So when we love one another, his love is perfected in us, and when his love is perfected in us, we have confidence in the day of judgment. And why is that? Look at the rest of this verse. He says, verse 17, by this love is perfected with us that we may have confidence in the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. I am so identified 
with Jesus Christ that I don't need to be any more fearful than he is. Does that sound a little arrogant? It's not. It's what the Bible says. I am as confident as Jesus Christ because he is in me and I am in him and God can't judge himself. Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are what? In Christ Jesus. Great promise. How do I get that confidence? By loving others. In fact, not only will I not be fearful in that future day, I won't be fearful today. Because verse 18 goes on to say, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. See, perfect love and fear can't coexist. They're mutually exclusive. If I love you and you love me, I won't be afraid of you. If I love you and you love me, you're not going to flinch every time you walk by me. Because that relationship exudes trust and confidence. And John goes on in verse 18 to say, Because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. If I say God loves me and I love God, but I'm afraid he's going to crush me, there's something wrong with my love. And John says what's wrong with it is that it's not perfected. I'm not perfected in love. Because when I love God and love my brothers... I have no fear of punishment. I have confidence in the day of judgment. Sixth reason I'm to love you. Love is reasonable. Verse 19. We love because he first loved us. Now it doesn't say here we love him because he first loved us. It just says we love everybody because he first loved us. God's love for me initiates my love for others. Now, I know me, and most of what I know I don't like. And I also know that God knows me better than I even know myself. And even though he knows me, he loves me, and he accepts me. And if God, knowing me like he does, loves me and accepts me, then I can love and accept anybody. You know, people often say you can't love someone else until you first love yourself. I have real reservations about that. But I'll tell you what I do know. You cannot love someone else if you don't know you're loved by God. You have to receive God's love in order to give it away. And then John says in verse 20, If someone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he's a liar. If someone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he's not confused, he's not mistaken, he's a liar. Now, God's easy to love. He doesn't have bad breath. He doesn't squeeze the toothpaste in the middle. He doesn't leave the milk out. 
It's easy to say, I love God. Somebody said, to dwell above with saints we love, all that will be glory, but to dwell below with saints we know, well, that's another story. It's easy to love God. A little different when I have to love you. But John says, if I say I love God and I don't love you, I'm a liar. Why? For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Where is God today? He's inside of you. So the question is, how can I love the invisible God and not love the visible God? How can I say I love Christ and hate his body? How can I say I love God and hate his church? How can I say I love God and hate his children? See, I should love you because it's reasonable. God loves me and God is in you. So what's the only reasonable response? That I would love you. I should love you because it's reasonable. And the seventh reason. Love is mandatory. Just in case none of the other reasons are enough for you, John adds one more in verse 21. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. It's a commandment. That's reason number seven. Jesus said the same thing in John 13, 34. He said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. So I should love you because Jesus commanded me to do it. So John says, love one another. You say, give me one good reason why I should love you. John gives us seven. It runs in the family. I've been so loved. Love is my testimony to the world. Love is my assurance that I'm God's child. Love is my confidence in the day of judgment. Love is the most reasonable thing I could do. And love is mandatory. And I don't know about you, but this passage leaves me with no excuses. We're going to close in prayer, and before we do, I'm going to ask Stacy Easton if she would stand up. There you are. Now walk, no, I won't make you do that. Walk across this way. It's the pregnant lady. So I'll, I'll let you walk that way. And then uh, if one of the deacons or elders would escort Stacy out to the lobby, um, after we close, I'll have you go out and, and give encouragement to her. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. We thank you for this passage that reminds us that what you want to do in our life is not just abstract and spiritual and outside of this life. It is those things, but your love came down to us in the person of Jesus Christ to make a difference in us. And Father, I pray that by your Spirit you would underline that truth in our lives today, that we might go from here motivated by your love for us, to make it practical 
to not just talk about it, but to do it. So that others might see it, so that the world might see it, so that we might have the confidence that you've called us to have as we walk through this world as your children. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.